A nation which fails to adequately remember salient points of its own history is like a person with Alzheimer's. And that can be a social disease of a most destructive nature. In nations and in individuals, self-forgetfulness is a fatal disease. When a nation chooses to reject that which made it great, it does more than just shoot itself in the foot. It chooses to deliberately die a distressing, drawn-out demise. We are seeing this in our own nation today. We saw it happen to Rome. And Habakkuk was a prophet who had a front row seat when it happened in Judah almost 3,000 years ago. History doesn't repeat itself, Dan Abnett says, but sometimes it rhymes. As Habakkuk nears the end of his sermon on trusting God in difficult times, because that's what the prophecy to, or we call Habakkuk is, it's a sermon on trusting God during difficult days, he ends with a song. The third chapter of this little prophecy is in fact a psalm. It is shaped like a psalm. It uses Hebrew poetry like a psalm. And it even takes up one of the most common themes found in the book of Psalms. And that is a history of God's interactions with his people. Now, Tonight, instead of going point by point through this psalm, what I want to do is I want to do a water ski through the book and show some of the key themes that we've described over the last couple of months and then show how they culminate in the psalm we find in chapter 3. As we have explored Habakkuk's growth in the understanding of his God and the world about him, we have noted several times that the overall big idea of the book of Habakkuk is what I have said is you can overcome your fears by rejoicing. Overcome your fears by rejoicing. Of course, rejoicing is not how Habakkuk started. Habakkuk was doing anything but rejoicing. Right off the top, we find Habakkuk is appalled. He's silenced into submission, into what I referred to several weeks ago as expectant submission. And in chapter 1, he looks around himself at God's people and he notices that everyone's doing their own thing. And he tells God this. And God replied, don't fret Habakkuk. I'll dish out justice by sending the Babylonians to crush them. Starting then in verse 12, we see that Habakkuk can't believe his ears. Wait, God, uh, you, you can't do that. God says, watch me. We defined expectant submission a few weeks ago as that which says, yes, Lord, even when the news is painful. Expectant submission says, yes, Lord, and then it awaits for him to act in the best way possible, knowing 
that whatever it is that happens is the best way possible for that to happen because the Lord has his hand in it. The big idea we found in chapter 1, the first part of chapter 1, is that you and I should complain in faith. Habakkuk was complaining. Don't make a mistake about it. But he was also expectantly submissive to his God. This complaining is submissive. In other words, it's not demanding anything from God. And it is expectant. He was looking to God for grace to work out things for our ultimate joy, but mostly for his glory and for the growth of his kingdom. Now, fortunately for you and me, God was not long in delaying to give Habakkuk an answer. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, God called Habakkuk to see or to behold, to pay attention to the glory of God that is coming. One of the elements we emphasized here is the repeated allusion to or pointing at the kingdom of God. That God is absolutely sovereign. That he is the one who is in control of all the kingdoms of the world. God is in charge. And he wants everyone to know that by making specific prophecies. Because when God prophesies what's going to come in the future, when it happens, we say, wow, who would have seen that coming? Well, the Almighty God, that's who. But first, we come to the most important verse in Habakkuk. And in fact, the verse is so important, we gave a whole sermon one week to this one verse and how it is found three times in the New Testament. And we learned that he who through faith is righteous shall live. You remember verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not right within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. We discover in this most important of verses in the entire Bible two very important truths. The evil person, described here by God in Habakkuk as the one who's puffed up, the one who's prideful, the one who is thinking only about himself, is the one who will be judged. Whereas on the other hand, the righteous one, the one who is trusting the promises of God for them in Christ, is the one who will live. The man, woman, or child that is proud or self-centered is the one who will be judged by God. And the one who trusts the promises of God is the one who will live. This is, of course, exactly what you all in this room, for the most part, have heard me say a hundred times. The essence of what it means to be a Christian. If you boil down Christianity into its smallest bit, it is that you and I trust the promises of God for you in Christ. This really is one of the best summaries. It's not everything, but it is a great summary of what it means to be a Christian. Then the rest of chapter 2 in Habakkuk is a little closer to what we normally expect when we get to the prophets. Here we have a statement from God that, uh, to Habakkuk that 
anticipated, that Habakkuk was anticipating earlier in his story, that judgment would come. And indeed, we find out in chapter 2, 6 through 20, that all evil will be dealt with. Every single bit, either on the cross or in hell. And we learned another important point. That when we're speaking to the people, we need to do it as God did it. We need to affirm love for them. You are loved. And we need to affirm to them that you are wrong. Now this is true in the church and out of the church. This is true for every single one of us. Judgment is always and only the prerogative of God. We aren't in the business, you and me, to go around beating people over the head. We tell them, you are loved. You can be loved. You can be the object of God's great passion and desires to spend eternity with him in heaven. And the path that you are walking is wrong. Now, we also remember, we noted that week, we said, that's not going to be a popular message. But our job is not to be popular, is it? Our job is to be honest, is to speak the truth in love. And then lastly, we noted, judgment will come. Now, one thing that we have to note about all of the prophetic statements of judgment straight throughout Scripture. One thing that is important to note is that God speaks these prophetic statements of judgment so that people will repent. God wants people to repent. God wants people not to face judgment. So he prophesies. He says, look, if you keep going in the path that you're going, you are going to have bad days ahead. And when we get to this fact that judgment will come, we need to remember it is with a tear in our eye that we speak of it. I don't want my neighbors to go into judgment, and you shouldn't either. Habakkuk certainly distant. Now, as we put some of these ideas together, and I only water skied through them just now, but over the last several weeks, one of the things that we learned is that you and I can overcome fears by rejoicing. But where this theme really shines through is in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. Let me read chapter 3 for us. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hands and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. 
Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the river, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? Or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses and on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raving, raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, and at the light of your arrows they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You, were, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of the warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet... Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord! is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Here we learn to overcome our fears by rejoicing. As Habakkuk goes through his prophecy, he's appalled into silence. He is thrust into needing to trust God in difficult times. And, and he, is, he gives this fearful expectation of judgment in chapter 2. And what is it that Habakkuk turns his heart towards when he then expectantly submits to God? He turns to remember what God has done for his people in the past. He says, in effect, in the first 16 verses, I will wait. We see this starting in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive your work. In the midst of the years, make your work known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk declares in his confidence, I have heard about your work and I fear it. He declares that what he wants more than anything, even more than he wants to avoid being destroyed by the Babylonian invasion, Habakkuk wants to be safe from God's work, namely God's work of judgment against those who don't trust him. 
And immediately after proclaiming his desire to stay on the right side of God as opposed to the right side of history, Habakkuk calls on God to revive his work of judgment. Bring it on, Lord. We need your judgment. We want your judgment to come. So long as that judgment is accompanied by mercy. That's what he says. In wrath, remember mercy. It is this element of expectant submission that combines the death of a normal, rational, everyday fear of foreign invasion that brings with it rejoicing in God's hand, even if it means painful foreign invasion. Habakkuk is testifying to you and to me that you can overcome your fears by rejoicing. By the way, you've heard me use this phrase, expectant submission now several times. What, what exactly does that mean? What is the word that we are familiar with that comes closest to it? Well, faith, trust, confidence that God will bring about what is best for us. God wants to give you and me as many images as possible to draw a picture of what it means to be a man or woman of faith. Habakkuk is one of God's examples of one who submits in expectation of God finishing his work for our joy and for his glory, even in the hard times. Now here's where we begin to make application. Is there a reason that we could be fearful in this day of ours? Oh, yes. As I've noted, history rhymes. And the first bars of the judgment that came to Rome and the first bars of the judgment that came to Judah are sounding in our own culture. Does that mean we despair? Oh, no. We do not despair because we have the God of history. And he has declared to us what we can do, beginning with is this expectancy that we say to God, you come. And then a submission where we say, thy will be done. Will the U.S. be invaded by foreign hordes? Well, perhaps not. But the culture is changing. Do you want God to judge your unbelieving neighbors? I hope not. Habakkuk didn't. But do we trust the Lord if judgment comes rather than revival? Yes. We pray fervently that the church will repent of its sitting back. And we pray that the church would repent of its unwillingness to go forth because the gates of hell cannot stand against us when we are walking with our Lord. We pray that the church repents because historically over and over and over again that is what has signified, that is what triggered revival in the world is the church repentant. The church living expectantly submissive. 
So how do we do it? How does it begin right here? How does it begin at Grace Santa Maria? It begins by rejoicing. It, re it begins by rejoicing in the fact that the Lord has given us enormous promises. Promises that are for us in Christ today. Promises, for example, in Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble nor be dismayed. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now that is a specific promise to Joshua, but it is a promise to us as well when we are walking with him. Our promise is not that we'll win every one of our battles as it was for Joshua, but our promise is that God will be with us even when apparently we lose. You want another promise? Good, I'll give you one. Jeremiah 29, build houses and live with them in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Make no mistake, we are in exile right now. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. My friends, the Jews found themselves in the city of the people that killed all of their relatives. The Jews found themselves in exile in a city that had destroyed their culture. And God said, give your kids in marriage. Have more kids. In this dangerous time? You want us to go and have kids and plant gardens and grow fruit trees? Yes. Why? Because when you are living like the salt and light of the world that you are, you will be doing everything God wants you to do. Will it be easy? Nope. I have yet to find the passage in Scripture where it says you're going to be happy all your life. But what I have found in the scripture is the God who can give you what you need to be the man and woman of God that he has created you to be whenever and wherever you find yourselves. In fact, as I said a few moments ago, in two weeks, I'm going to begin a series that I'm calling For the City. And this Jeremiah passage will be one of those passages we preach why? Because we're not to be afraid. We're not to huddle in our living rooms and watch TV and for shame, for shame. We are instead to be out in the world sharing the love of Jesus. And if you can't do that, empower those around you who are by encouraging them, by strengthening them, by living in such a way as the world at worst can't, can't look at you and say, oh, there's one of those bad Christians. Instead, let them see you as one who puts faith in the God of history, the God of this city, whatever city it is. Now, unfortunately, I don't have time to explore all that the verses 3 to 15 recall from the history of God coming in judgment against Israel and her enemies. But the Hebrew 
poet prophets frequently saw manifestations of God working in nature. And I love looking at these. For example, in verse 6, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. Now, did the mountains really move? I don't think that was his point. I think instead, the point, the point here is this. This is, this is very important that you get. When the Hebrew prophet priest or prophet poet looked out and he said the mountains shook. What he was talking about is he's looking at the world around him and he sees the power of God there. You look and you see some oak trees. You look and you see golden brown hills. But the Hebrew poet prophet looked and he saw the activity of the eternal God and he expressed himself in sometimes these unbelievable ways but he did so so that you and I would catch a glimpse of a vision of a God who is active now where you live and that is the God you can trust. That is the God you can trust your marriage to. That is the God you can trust your children to. That is the God that you can trust for you to stand up and say, I won't go down this road. Instead, I'm going to be one who stands for the truth and I'm going to do so in love because it is my God who empowers me to do so. I have read all kinds of things and there are others of you who have too and you've seen where they say, oh, this is just a half step above paganism and there's all these gods of thunders and rivers and these, that's what the Jews were doing. Baloney! Don't listen to that. These statements and the many beautiful Poetic statements throughout the Old Testament are from a man or a woman who is intoxicated with God, with Yahweh, with the God of creation, not with all these little petty Greek deities. And this Hebrew prophet, he looked and he saw the mountains shaking with the activity of God, and what did it do? It caused him to shake. In verse 16 is a great verse where he says, I hear, what did he hear? He heard the judgment of God and he heard all the things that God had done for Israel and against Israel's enemies even when Israel was Israel's enemy. And he said, my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. He's saying, oh man, I'm scared. Scared. Verse 16, the first part of 16 is a man who is terrified because he knows that judgment hurts and he knows that his country is a place where judgment is deserved and judgment is coming. Yet. Another way of saying that is nevertheless, Yet, 
I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Habakkuk realizes that because God has said that he would judge Judah, and Habakkuk realizes because he has just recalled a very curtailed, brief summary of the history of God's work with his people in which God sent violent judgment, Habakkuk realizes that judgment is coming. And he's scared. Frankly, I don't want to see God judge our nation or any other nation any more than he's already judging it now. But, as John Wayne so eloquently put it, courage is being scared to death but saddling up anyways. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does. He saddles up. He gets on his horse and he rides because he knows that's what he's got to do. And that's what we have got to do. Instead of sitting back and saying, oh God, rapture me. We say, oh God, use me so that you'll rapture other people. God, uh, Habakkuk, expresses the expectant part in his anticipation of the judgment so that we will come to those whom God is threatening judgment against and saying with the prophet Ezekiel, why will you die? Turn, turn to the Lord and live. And in this trepidation, he rejoices Overcome your fears by rejoicing. I want to touch on something very briefly. It's this phrase, the fear of the Lord. I've preached on it several times, and Pastor Benji has preached on it a few times as well. But the fear of the Lord is a New Testament term as well. We find it, among other places, in 2 Corinthians 5.11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. My friends, I challenge you in the presence of God, in the presence of his prophet Habakkuk, I challenge you to fear the Lord more than you fear the culture around you. To fear the Lord more than you fear ridicule and being brushed off as irrelevant. The threats of isolation and persecution from the world around us is real. And there needs to come a level of precaution that is right with regards to it. But mostly, the preparation it takes in for, for living in light of that is knowing God better and therefore loving him and trusting him more. Do not fear being on the wrong side of history. Be in fear of being on the wrong side of God. And that is when you will be able to overcome your fears with rejoicing. Then at the very end, the very last three verses of Habakkuk's prophecy, he comes to what I think are the second most important passage in Habakkuk. Starting in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... Though the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, once again, yet, nevertheless, 
Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Yahweh, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's and makes me tread on high places. My friends, if everything that you value evaporates from before your eyes, if everything that is important to you goes away, if you end up in a concentration camp in Idaho, or you become the laughing stock and the butt of every joke, God, the Lord, remains your strength. God, the Lord, is the one who will enable you to live for your joy and his glory through all of that. There is grace for that, and this too shall pass. Therefore, you can overcome your fears by rejoicing. So my friends, tonight, begin to do it. Rejoice. Rejoice in your salvation. God has already given you the only thing you have to have in this world. You don't need anything else. Rejoice. Rejoice that God has given you loved ones to be with you in your joy. Rejoice that you are here and you are hearing his word and you are being blessed by him, by his Holy Spirit working in you and through you. Rejoice because it doesn't matter what happens the rest of your life. It's all for God's glory. And will pain come? Yes. I guarantee it. Pain will come. But you can rejoice. And as you're rejoicing, all the fears of the pain and the tribulation and the problems won't be nearly as great as your rejoicing. Corrie ten Boom was a woman from a Dutch watchmaker family. And her family was deeply Christian as opposed to deeply religious as were many Dutch in her day. And it began by a friend of hers bringing a Jewish man who had escaped from Germany. This was before the war really happened. And this man began telling the family of the horrors that had started in Germany. And Corrie Ten Boom, she listened, and, and, and she heard these stories, but the next day she went back to making watches. Well, she started noticing more Jews were coming to their town. And there were a group of Christians who had to find a way to hide these Dutch because the Germans were right on their doorstep. And in fact, the Germans knocked down their doorstep and came right on in. And when you listen to Corey Ten Boom's story about what she did and how she would steal ration cards and how she would lie to the guards and the people who were knocking on her doors, she realized she came to understand that she needed to have something more than just being afraid. She says in her book, Worry is a cycle of inefficient thoughts whirling around a center of fear. 
inefficient thoughts whirling around the center of fear. The story is a great one. And of course, they eventually got caught, as they must, living in this town when a German spy requested that she hide his Jewish wife. But it was at this point that she testifies that the work of God in her really began. She, at this point, grew in her ability to know God and to trust his promises. He watched out for her in one camp, and then finally she was trans, uh, tr transported to another, even worse camp. And she began to understand God's promises. She said, let God promises shine on your problems. Because she needed light. In Ravensbrook, the concentration camp for women, Corrie Ten Boom learned perhaps one of the most important lessons of her life. Joy runs deeper than despair. Now, I pray fervently that there are no Ravensbrooks in our future, but even if there are, joy runs deeper than despair. And that is how you and I can know from the testimony of Habakkuk, from the testimony of many who have gone before us, including Corey Ten Boom, we can know that we can overcome our fears by rejoicing. Let us pray. Lord Almighty, it is a fearful thing to live in this world. It is even a more fearful thing to live not knowing the God who is in charge of this world. God, I pray that you will enable us to be the men and women of God who trust you and are called to be a part of your kingdom. Help us, Lord, to overcome our fears by rejoicing in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.